I thought I was lost, but then I realized I was on an adventure finding myself. Before I get into today's episode, I'd like to introduce you to Merida Siget Consulting. Through my Finding Myself journey, I've learned a lot, and I'd like to use what I've learned to help you live the life that you want to live. Change and transformation sometimes can be scary and confusing. I'd like to support you to find the joy in the journey and be the person that you want to be. Increased positivity, mindset shifts, and an action plan can get you on the right path to the life that you have always wanted. Check out my website at www.meredithsiget.com. Let me spell that for you. Meredith, M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H, Siget, S-I-G-E-T. There, you can schedule a free 20-minute discovery call and check out everything that I have to offer. Let me know that you're a listener. I want to show extra special love to all of my listeners out there. Welcome back to the Finding Myself podcast. I am Meredith Siget, the host here, and oh my gosh, I have a dynamic guest for you tonight. This is Jim Valley. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Hello. I'm great. How are you? I am doing good. Jim, I got to be honest with you. I'm really nervous. There is no reason to be nervous. Oh, I have been nervous. I want it more than all day. I have been like in my head thinking about this and and just really nervous to speak with you. There is nothing to be nervous about. Um, yeah, there's absolutely nothing to be nervous about. All right. Well, we'll, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. So I have Jim here, and Jim has a really interesting story. But before we get into it, I got to talk a little bit about Jim. (laughs) So I know Jim through his podcasting life. So Jim, what kind of podcasts do you do? I do a lot of professional wrestling podcasts, which now when you talk about being nervous, now you just sound, you sound ridiculous. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> kidding. No, um, I used to be on the radio for, for a very long time and we'll get into a lot of that later, but, um, with, with the advent of podcasting now, um, there's so many opportunities, but the other thing was, is that I didn't really want to do politics or news or things for various time commitments. I've always watched wrestling and Wrestling can be very siloed, and I enjoy it. You can talk about it in different ways, on different levels. And so it just kind of turned out to be a great avenue for me to express myself and keep a lot of my radio skills sharp. All right. Well, I have been secondhand listening to you for, I don't even know how long. At least five years. All right. That's probably it. Um, Michael is the one who's listened to you. And he has um, followed the Wrestling Observer for a long time, uh, print and, and the different things that they've done. Um, and I, I got to tell you, so Jim and I talked a couple days ago just to set up this episode. And Jim, it was really weird to have you talk back to me after so many years of listening to you. Oh, most people in my life are used to me talking back to them. That goes way back, but... 
Um, depending on where the Venn diagram is with your listeners in this podcast <laughs> and the world of wrestling, the Wrestling Observer has been around for years and years and years. And uh, if you've never watched wrestling or you have this stigma in your head or this stereotype in your head, um, a lot of the fans, I know you're going to find this shocking, we don't all believe it's real. And oh. also this Wrestling Observer is like the Wall Street Journal. It talks about business trends. It talks about uh, various other trends. It talks about who's doing what and why. And really kind of in a very intelligent way, uh, paints the picture of the landscape that is the current snapshot of professional wrestling. It's not just about, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to smash you and I'm going to do this and you're going to bleed. It's it's not all about that. It's a very intelligent look at the business and, you know, just like you'd read the sporting news or any other website about the NFL or Broadway or, or any other entertainment slash sports uh, form of entertainment that's out there. Well, and I, I got to completely agree with you. I mean, I, again, I do listen to it and I, um, a second hand, but it catches my interest in talking about the business side of things because we know the what's on TV, but the why or the how and the behind the scenes is really interesting, but also the history of it. There is so much rich history in the United States with wrestling, with wrestling families and the territories. Um, it's interesting to just kind of hear that and how you know it's gotten to be where it is today. I don't know about you. I mean, I like my life. I'm very happy with it, but I live a regular life. You know, you work spend time with your family, you have some free time, some hobbies, all the, all the things that the regular people do. And you read these stories or you hear these stories about, you know, wrestling came from the carnivals and the circus and these guys rode for miles and they did all of these crazy, wild, carny things. And it's just fascinating to me that there's this whole other aspect of things that I would never, ever do. And it's just, it's, I find it fascinating. Yeah. But I have to say, I checked out your Instagram account recently. I'm and really behind on that. I'm sorry. I don't know if you lead like an average life. I saw pictures of you with people that I'm never going to meet. And it looks like you like to travel. Yes, we travel so, quite a bit. So I'm not sure you can consider yourself an average person. What uh, what stuck out to you? Was there something in particular? Well, I was checking out your Disney pictures, I'm not going to lie, and I heard that that was a big trip for you. Michael was kind of explaining that was a big trip for you. Yeah, we, uh, we've been to, my wife is in the travel business, she's a superstar, and we'll kind of get into kind of her career path and my career path because of the way things went, but uh, so she, we travel a lot, and we've been to every Disney park in the world. Uh, last year we went to Dubai and Abu Dhabi and there's an incredible theme park there that's indoors called Warner Brothers World and it's amazing. There's another theme park in Holland that is very traditional and one of the oldest in the world and it's grown consistently and it's got just a creative way of telling stories that is different from the Disney way, sort of like a wrestling parallel where people think the only way to produce wrestling is like WWE, but there are companies all over the world that do it and do their storytelling or their matches or what have you in a different way, but you're just conditioned that there's one way, that it's the Disney way. And so there's a lot of, we, we have met so many wonderful people and seen so many great things and stayed so many great places. So yeah, I'm very, very lucky in that regard. 
Well, neat. I love that you, you kind of had this goal, or maybe it was a bucket list item, but some, you know, something fun um, that was probably very joyful to, you know, go to all these amusement parks. Yeah, absolutely. And we've done a lot of cool other things too, as far as, you know, last year it was on my bucket list. I always wanted to stay at the Burj Al Arab, the world's only seven star hotel that cost you know, millions to make and everything you see that is gold is gold or gold plated. And you have your own butler that draws your bath and all of these opulent things. And we got to spend a few days there over my birthday last year. So that was really cool. Okay. I don't think you can call yourself average after doing something like that. I'm sorry. Pretty neat. But just a few days. It's not like we live there all the time or something, but yeah, a few days. It's, it's attainable. Okay, I'm not going to agree with you on that one. All right, fair enough. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, because like that, I don't think, you know, a lot of people are going to be able to do that. They may dream about it. Um, So that's pretty neat. Here's the thing, a lot of times people do see those trips and they go, or Disney, and and I always make suggestions, like here's here's a great example. Um, Dollywood in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee is a fantastic park. And Pigeon Forge is like this little more affordable Orlando. And Pigeon Forge is cute, I think. And Dollywood is spectacular. It's in this wooded area. It's got some great roller coasters. It's got some classic rides. It's got a ton of music and food and different stages where performers are. And it's just an adorable theme park. And I always tell people, look, if, if Disney is too expensive, and, and I can certainly see that, Dollywood is a fantastic alternative. And nobody ever takes me up on that. Ever, ever, ever. Also, San Antonio. I love Schlitterbahn. Uh, in San Antonio, there's a great Six Flags there. We went to a Six Flags in Arlington la- in December that I love. The, maybe the greatest Six Flags I've ever been to. So there are options that, that I always try to suggest to people, and they never, never ever take me up on it. Okay, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this. Have you ever been to Hershey Park? I have not, but we are, that's on the list. That's on the, we need to do Hershey Park and we need to do Cedar Point. Oh, okay. If you ever come to Hershey Park, you have to look me up. Yes. We'll, we'll meet you there. Um, but Cedar Point, how, how is Cedar Point not higher on your list? You know, it's not it's not a full year park, so it's harder to, for us to get to and things. Oh. So it's a challenge. But I think we're crossing it off the list. Is it this year? It's coming up here pretty soon. Finally. C- Cedar Point was the amusement park that I went to growing up. Um, it's was kind of the best one closest to Michigan. We've got some smaller ones in Michigan, um, but for something that had big roller coasters, that's where you you went to. Yeah, no, I mean, it's always neck and neck with Magic Mountain as far as the roller coaster park. But we went back to Magic Mountain not that long ago, and we hadn't been in a very long time. And I, I wasn't that, I wasn't, I'm not as strong on Magic Mountain as many others are. If you like it, fantastic, enjoy it. But I'm not going to say anything bad. I'm just saying it, uh, it is not, um, it's not my favorite. Okay. But if you enjoy it, fantastic. All right. That's fair. That's a fair review. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm looking forward to Cedar Point. It looks it looks fantastic. Yeah. Cedar Point is nice. All right. So how about we dive into this episode and get right to it? Great. So, Jim, I asked you on to kind of talk about the story that you've 
put out there and um, and kind of a story about your life. You have experienced some things that could have really like taken you out. I mean, literally, figuratively, and it just seems like you were a fighter. I have almost died four times. And that's Um, crazy. So I was in radio for a very long time. And then the the business, I was was let go in 08 from a job in radio here in Seattle and strictly economics. And I just made a decision at that point. I, I had other offers to go to other markets and things and I just decided, do I want to keep following this business or do I want to make a pivot? And so I made a pivot to another job and I was doing really, really well at it. I was making more money. I was in more involved in a community. I was really felt like I was making a difference and things were going great. I was like, wow, geez, I guess, you know, sometimes in life you push, you work hard, you think it's not going to happen, but maybe, maybe there's something more to when they say that, you know, everything happens for a reason, timing is everything, all of those things. And um, things were going awesome. And then one day I got sick and um, it kept getting worse and medicine wasn't working and um, I was coughing up blood. And then, you know, the next thing you know, um, you know, I go to the doctor to get, you know, oh, it's just a flu. It's just a pneumonia, blah, blah, blah. And um, the, uh, the nursing assistant comes into the room and has got this shocked look on her face after my x-rays. And he goes, put on this mask and get to the hospital now. I was like, geez, you guys freak out over nothing. <laughs> and um, I was working in a small town at the time. So the ho- this hospital was not really equipped to, to deal with my situation. So I spent a few days, like a day or two there, just throwing up. Just nothing but throwing up blood, coughing up blood. And so I went up to by ambulance about 30 minutes away to a hospital in Olympia, Washington. Uh, the hospital where I was born. Um, and it took them a while to uh, figure everything out, but they believed at the time that I had a, a condition that was known as Wegner's vasculitis, also known as Wegner's granulomatosis. And today it's known as GPA. And basically, long story short, what it is, it's inflammation. Uh, your immune system is attacking your body. And I, my lungs had filled up with blood. And here's what happens, particularly with guys. It attacks primarily white guys in their 40s and 80s. And 20 years ago, it was believed to be a death sentence. As I have gone on and seen countless doctors, uh, particularly the older ones, they are amazed that I'm alive. They're amazed that I am doing as well as I am. And they are just overall amazed because they've seen so many people die over the years so um, I was so bad by the time I got to Olympia that they could not, they kept trying to stabilize me. And so what they wanted to do was just give me a simple lung biopsy to just be positive that what I had was Wagner's vasculitis. And when they first were under the suspicion of that, this condition is so rare that a lot of the nurses in the ER went out to the computer and Googled it because <laughs> they didn't know oh. what it was. This hits maybe 500 cases a year, I'm told. It's very, very rare. And so they, they put me under for a very simple procedure that was supposed to last four hours. Well, nine days later. Oh, gosh. I am uh, brought up. And again, they could not stabilize me well enough to, to bring me out of this, of being intubated, this uh, medically induced coma. 
And so I spent nine days uh, under. And I guess I woke up and I could see the calendar and the time. And I guess I was just, you know, I couldn't believe this happened. So, you know, I was in the hospital about 30 days. I went through physical therapy and, uh, you know, I, I recovered. And people couldn't believe that I recovered in 30 days. They thought that was spectacular. Um, I healed very quickly and I was, you know, on my way. And things looked great. And, and it was, you know, it was hard. I had to, again, do a lot of physical therapy with walking and talking and breathing. And these I called the good times because it would get worse, much, much worse. Wow. But I got out of there and it was awesome. I had a very public job at the time and I had, you know, all kinds of thank you, all kinds of get well cards and flowers and all of this stuff. As a matter of fact, um, and this is not a testament to me. This is just a testament to the community I was in at the time. One of the nurses goes, are you some kind of celebrity or something? Why do you have all this stuff? <laughs> I was just like, no, no, it's, it's just the job. It's not, it's not, it's just, it's just the job that I have. So it's not a, no, it's not that. But, you know, it was, it was a really inspirational time. And we were, you know, the, it, it you know, I got better. We just felt like, okay, this was a speed bump. It could have been much worse. And we're very grateful. And we're just, you know, we're going to go on and show gratitude and, you know, move on. And, and life is going to get better. Life did not get better. Um, into my recovery, I had a relapse. Wow. And as I was recovering um, at home, I was having these incredible pains just these ridiculous pains where one time it took me about an hour to get out of bed. Um, I would get massages and that would work a little bit. I would stretch that would work a little bit, but I could never completely get rid of these incredible pains, particularly my neck and my upper body. It was just the, the pain and the stiffness was, was intense. So we go get um, x-rays and I have got this fungus. I've got this dot about the size of maybe a small jelly bean or a, small peanut M&M on my neck. And I've got two other lesions in my brain, uh, one near the back right-hand side, and then one in the front right-hand side. And they're probably eh, maybe about the size of your, the, your thumb, tip of your thumb to your knuckle, right around in there. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm so, looking at my thumb. <laughs> yeah. Um, those are the ones in my, in my, in my brain. I had two lesions in my brain. So it took, Fast forwarding for the sake of time, it took a while to figure out what these are. And everyone came to the conclusion that it was aspergillus, aspergillosis, a fungus that is very common. It's in the air that you breathe. It's in leaves. Uh, it's in pot. It's in a lot of different things. It's in, in being this warm, cold, being in this moderate, wet climate here, we have perhaps more than others here in the Northwest. Okay. So... What had happened when I left um, the hospital in Olympia for this autoimmune condition, they had put me on this autoimmune uh, suppressing drug system. This, uh, this every cycle, I'd get it every few weeks, this, this drug to keep my immune system in check. Well, it suppressed my immune system so much that I inhaled this fungus and I couldn't fight it. And so one lodged again on my neck, right around C4, in my, right on my spinal column. And then the other two were in my brain. And they were like, okay, well, these things grow really fast and they take a long time to disappear, but, you know, this is not the end of the world. It's just going to take a while. So they put me on antifungal drugs, um, not the end of the world. 
Well, something with the fungus, the fungi, caused a relapse. And I had a seizure one day in my home. Mm -hmm. So I was again back in an ambulance going back up to Olympia. And I ended up spending um, over 60 days this time in the hospital and in physical therapy. Um, I was intubated this next time for almost three, for over three weeks. So we're talking almost an entire month of intubation in the year 2012. So this happened at the end of January, and now we are um, end of Marchish, April, in there. So I was under for three weeks because of this relapse. And things were so bad at one point. Uh, by the way, uh, the first, the, if you're keeping track at home, when I was there the first time and they did the uh, lung biopsy, uh, that was the first brush with death. Uh, the doctor said, you never crashed, but you were definitely clipping the tops of trees. Oh, gosh, scary. So this next time when I'm intubated, and they couldn't bring me up because they couldn't stabilize me enough. Um, it was over um, Memorial Day weekend. It was like the Tuesday after that. And the doctors took my wife and her parents and some other friends at the time into a room and said, make plans because he's not going to make it. Scary. Yeah. So, I mean, my wife had to cope with, you know, being a widow in her 30s. Um, you know, not that it's good at any time. But, you know, obviously, three weeks later, I, I was, you know, I, I did finally come out of the medically induced coma. But what had happened was, um, and I was, um, they, they put a trach in my neck so I couldn't talk for breathing purposes because you can't be intubated for that long without damage. So they put a trach in my neck and I had my arms lashed to uh, the side of the bed so I didn't hurt myself. Okay. So I can't talk and I'm lashed to the bed and I'm just looking around. And not only that, um, the fungus, the one that was on my spinal cord, had caused some problems. And I was essentially paralyzed on my entire left side. Oh. <laughs> uh, that, I mean, just, okay, I, I can't talk has to be weird to wake up and not be able to communicate. Then you realize I can't move. One, because I'm, you know, strapped down, but two, I can't move because I can't move. Well, and, you know, they're doing that for your own safety. Right. And, but I can't communicate to them that I'm fine. I'm not going to do anything. I'm fine, you know. So you're just kind of stuck there. You're just like, oh, there's nothing is I can do about you this. Is blink once, Yeah, blink no one is, no one is on my side in this regard. I, I couldn't, and I had no voice to change anyone's minds so i'm just like okay i'm stuck here with this this thing so yeah you know it i can't express the difference when the first time leaving the hospital that you're in such a good mood and you're on such a high and you think the positive attitude and the positiveness and everything you know and you're ready to go out and you know have this second chance and you know, you, you put all of this faith and you believe so much that this positive attitude played such a huge role in your recovery and everything. And then you discover for the next several years that the positive attitude doesn't do crap for you. And, and I'm not saying it doesn't in the world. I'm not saying that. 
I'm just saying that, you know, you just keep getting slapped and slapped and slapped and slapped and slapped for years is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and it was just like, it was hard. So, you know, here I am. I think everything's going to be great and everything's moving forward. And now I'm paralyzed. I'm halfway paralyzed. Um, I'm in the hospital. Things are worse. I've got a rare condition that there isn't a lot of knowledge about, not a lot of support for, not a lot of funding for, nothing. I mean, it's just, you're, you're just like, I am a unique case and there ain't nothing you can do about it. And it just, you know, you spent a lot of lonely nights. You know, when people come in and visit you, that's fine. That's great. But there's also all of these hours after six or seven when people leave and you're there till seven the next morning and you can't sleep and you're just like, gives you a lot of time with yourself. It does. And, you know, when I, <laughs> so um, at the time the doctors told me with the, with the par- with the paralysis that I would probably get my leg back, which I did. They told me that I may or may not get my left arm back and I'm right-handed. So it wasn't the end of the world, but they said, chances are really slim. You're going to get your hand back. And, you know, I remember being in the hospital on January on a July 4th that year with fireworks going off all around. You can hear them in the distance and I could see my hand move. And I was just like, well, this is better than any fireworks display in the whole world. I don't care if it's Australia or Paris or Ryan Seacrest. This is way better. (laughs) Yes. A different, different perspective, a, a different priority, a different set of fireworks. Yeah. So, you know, it was a, it was a long road back and, you know, it's hard. A lot of, a lot of uh, the physical therapists would fight over me and it was because I wanted to do the work and I would push myself harder than they wanted me to. And you have to understand, you know, a lot of their patients are older, so they're in a different place in their lives. Uh, maybe they only have so much strength and so much energy. So it was, you know, I wanted out of this thing and I was going to do whatever I could to, to get out of it. So it was a lot of work. It was a lot of loneliness at times. It was, it was you know, it's really hard. Um, and it's been hard. Once, Even when we left the hospital again, uh, it's very hard to see your wife um, have to work. And that's here's the other thing. Um, you know, my wife is in the travel business. So now we're going on a total of three months where she is working in, you know, critical care where I'm at or in the hospital in my room, she's working remotely uh, instead of in her office. And she's my advocate for healthcare. Anybody who spent any time in the hospital, and this isn't a knock on, on any healthcare system, but you still need to advocate for yourself given times for whatever reason, because sometimes you know best, sometimes you know they're busy and you might get overlooked. There's just, I'm not even talking about major things. They're just things where you need to stick up for yourself. And she had all of these things to do. Plus in the back of her head, you know, her fucking, her husband may never be the same. Her husband may die. She's got all of these things to juggle along with just, you know, keeping the metaphorical roof over our heads. It's really hard when you're dealing with a situation that's so serious like that. Life does not stop. 
you want everything else to stop so you can focus on what's in front of you, but it it doesn't listen to you. No. And that that's hard because you know you you need to keep you know moving forward your household forward. You yeah. you still need to take care of your own personal health. Uh, I mean, just you know, I I've been someone. Um, we've talked about Michael's medical issues on the podcast before, and um, he's had some past issues. And I've been that person who's been in the hospital, in the you know, quote unquote reclining chair for seven days. Um, and at some point I needed to take a shower, but I was afraid to leave, but I, I needed to take a shower and, and, you know, just take care of some of, you know, your personal needs so that you can stay strong and be strong and do the job that you're there to do. Yeah. When, um, when the doctors told my wife to make plans, um, people were like, you know, why don't you just get out of here for a little while and, you know, get some space, get some air and, you know, just, just, you know, let, let's, you know, focus on you for a little while. And that's, and that's what she did. So, um, you know, you could talk about, I'm the hero or I'm this and I'm that, but you know, the reality is I slept through a lot of it and she did a lot of these things, but it also sucks that, and this sucked out of the hospital too, for, for a very long time when, you are helpless and you're powerless to, to, to help. It sucks to see your loved ones upset or angry or tired, frustrated, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. You're powerless. And that, you know, that feeling of helplessness is, is awful. It's, it's just this despair that I, I can't explain. I, and I am totally not going to disagree with that, you know, being, you know, in that situation, you know, myself. I get it, but the the one comfort that I have taken is in that partnership, uh, that there is someone there to ride the roller coaster with me or that I've been able to ride the roller coaster with. Because you talk about loneliness and without that person who gets you, who's willing to go, you know, 25 hours awake. Um, it would be even more tough. Yeah. And there were, there were issues. Um, we had an issue. Um, I was under, so I didn't hear about this till after the fact. Um, somebody, somebody, we'll just say somebody. Okay. Um, somebody somewhere in the circle, maybe family, maybe friend, whatever. Um, was, was staying late and they walked out with my wife to the, parking lot and said good night and my wife went on her way this person came back to my room and this person apparently according to the nurses um at some point got up and shook me and wanted me to wake up <laughs> which would have been very bad for me had it continued for an extended period of time or been much rougher um not good so you know, there are other things you have to manage and deal with um, as far as people, as far as just everything. I mean, when after the the meeting with the doctors, some of the people in the room were not practicing discretion. And the next day after my wife is only known for less than 24 hours that she may be a widow, 
a nurse comes up to her and goes, you've got 14 people in the waiting room right now. Oh, wow. That... Because someone, someone had spread the word that I was dying. That's, that's hard. Um, you know, you want the, the family to handle things the way they need to handle things. Um, and to respect that um, and pay your concerns when it's appropriate. Yeah. And I mean, and, and those 14 people did not know, you know, they didn't know they're, they're innocent. They're innocent at all. Of yeah. This. I want to make, I want to make that clear. It's just the person should have not done that and kind of looked at a bigger picture perhaps. But those are the type of things that, Maybe you don't always consider when dealing with this situation. And I always tell people this. People always ask me what to take from it. And this is an unpleasant thing to say, but it's true. Everyone has the conversation about pulling the plug. My wife, at, some, at one point, they had talked about, um, to help stabilize me and make things better, they talked about removing the lesion on my neck but there was a 95% chance that I would be a paraplegic. And she didn't know. I mean, do I want to be a paraplegic? Would it, what, what does that, she did, we never had that conversation. So as awful as it is, um, have that conversation with your loved ones. There's so many things that you just don't even know. I mean, she had so many decisions to make, so many medical decisions to make for me on my behalf. And that was, you know, that's probably one of the toughest ones. So that's what I always tell people as far as that goes is is let people know your your feelings on how you would cope personally, your personal choice uh, about being a paraplegic. That's actually a good message because I, I heard you speak about that on your podcast and Michael and I talked about it because you mentioned it. Um, you know, when you're in those situations, to what extent do you want your family to um, intervene medically, you know, and, and with what outcomes are you okay with? Um, you're right that that isn't a conversation that you typically have. It's just um, the one about pulling the plug. So I think that was that's a good message to kind of think about. I know people don't like talking about this stuff, um, but when it comes down to it, you want to help your loved ones out if they have to make those decisions. Yeah, you know what's worse than talking about it? Having to make that decision without any input. Very true. Very so, true. So, um, you know, this condition, this Wagner's, it is in remission. And it's been in remission for a very long time. And it's something that I will always live with. And, you know, every time I saw a doctor, every time they'd bring out this huge stack, you know, this... <laughs> huge my file is is ridiculous it's a new york city phone book or i don't even know what the proper analogy is these days in the digital age but it's it's huge <laughs> it's showing and, your age that you know a phone book yeah i don't i'm just this big huge thick book i don't know what whatever whatever but um you know they would always say well you look better in person than you do on paper uh you look terrible in here and you know, the, the other, you know, a lot of the challenges were uh, dealing with um, how I process oxygen and how quickly I absorb oxygen. There will always be a level. You know, I mean, I'm fine, 
but you know, no matter how hard I would train, I could never be like a like a competitive runner on any level. That's just the way it is. Um, my saturation points are very good for what they're above what doctors ever thought they would be, but there will always be limits to those things. Um, you know, I, I think I'm because of the the uh, the, the um, fungus on my neck, the lesion on my neck. Um, you know, I, I always feel like my left side is always sli- is definitely slightly weaker than my right, and it's probably weaker than it than it would have been otherwise. Um, there's, I think, there's a slight difference in muscle tone, no matter how hard I work out. So there will always be these these issues. And and to be honest, I you know I don't know what it means for how long I'm going to live. There are people, doctors, who tell me, oh yeah, there's I've got patients in their 70s and they're fine, and you know, then there are others. I, I have no idea, but, you know, going forward, it was, it was really difficult. It was a, it was a long recovery having both these one, two punches as far as dealing with the, the Wegners and then also dealing with the lesions. So, um, there's a lot of frustration on my part because, um, once I got out of the hospital in, um, in July, um, it was a long recovery. I mean, I expected to be recovered in a month back in February, March. And now here we are in July and I'm still not recovered. And these fungus, these fungi are supposed to take a few months to disappear and they're not disappearing. Um, there's just no real progress being made versus the timetables that were originally set. So there was a lot of frustration on my part. And that frustration was exacerbated when I've been out of the hospital and I'm trying to recover. And in August, I get um, confirmation from my insurance company that I'm not covered. Ugh. I I was so paranoid about this the whole time. Um, every time, you know, someone would come to me, do you want to do this? I was like, and this is covered. And I called the insurance. I don't know how many times I called the insurance company because I was just, I just was paranoid about it. And sadly, I guess I was paranoid for a reason, but you know, it, it was regardless of the fact that my doctors didn't know, I didn't know, it's a rare condition. Nobody knows if it's inherited or it's something to do with the environment. It's a pre-existing condition. Had this happened even, I think like not even like a year later under Obamacare, my life would be different. Oh gosh, I have terrible timing. In case you haven't wondered, in case you haven't picked up on that pattern yet, uh, so you know now I am weak. I am still recovering. I've got you know the, the issue with the with the lungs. I've got the issue with um, the the fungus and the uh, medication for the fungus. Um, it's ten thousand dollars a month. What? Oh, yeah, you heard. I did not stutter. Okay. Voriconazole. Voriconazole. (laughs) And not only is it $10,000 a month, it has got its own symptoms. Um, It causes fatigue. And it builds up calcium on your joints. So you have trouble walking. I could do maybe a mile. And that was about it. I could do a mile normally. And then you would hear like my feet, almost like flippers, like I was walking in flippers, you would hear them slap. And the minute I heard the slap, I knew I was done. And that was about a mile. 
Okay. So, you know, there were, so not only do I need to recover from the things that are harming my body, I also have to take these things that harm my body and contribute to other problems uh, that are, you know, hindering my recovery, but also helping my recovery. It was just this, it was so, I cannot express how frustrating it was. And so at times it was just, you know, you're just despondent uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm not my job anymore. Uh, my wife is working and we had moved down to this other town for this job. I'm up in another town right now in our condo, which we own, but we had rented it out so we couldn't move back. And so there was, there was just all of these things, all of these different things. And it just was like, again, you just feel like the biggest schmuck because this feels like it's all your fault, even though I didn't do anything. You just feel guilty that you can't help. Um, the bills now are, you know, like a million dollars and you don't have a job and who the hell's going to hire you anyway? Cause look at you, you're a mess. And it's just all of these things. I mean, you talk about for better or for worse, but it's pretty close to worse right now. <laughs> so it's just, you know, Everything has worked out over the mess, but it has worked out. And, but in order for you to have the light times, you know, it got, it got really, really dark. And, you know, you just sit there in bed because that's all you can do. And there's not much you can do to, to help yourself. There's not much you can do for, for anything. And so, you know, then we had, Another problem with the uh, lesion in my head in around, uh, right around Christmas-ish of uh, 2013. And so they took me to the hospital and they removed one of the lesions that um, was in my head. What the, uh, the voriconazole, the antifungal, made one of the lesions, the big one in front, disappear. And that was the only one. So the one in my neck is still there. It will always be there. And then um, we go to the University of Washington and have the, the superstar brain team work on me. And it was supposed to be several hours. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I barely survived a freaking double lung biopsy, I'm a little scared. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm scared. So this is supposed to take hours. And, um, you know, my wife, obviously she's nervous. Everybody's nervous. Everybody, this is not an original thought in my head. And so um, my wife is in the waiting room and 45 minutes go by and the doctor comes in. She's like, you know, what the hell are you doing here? Yeah. They opened up my head and the uh, antifungal medicine had created such a hard shell around the lesion. They just popped it out, put the skull back on, and they were done, 45 minutes. <laughs> okay. So I woke up in uh, critical care, and when, you do, when, it's, when you're in uh, the brain wing, they um, give you your own nurse. So it's all these beds, close together, curtains, and everyone has one right there. And I woke up, and I'm sure it was part of the drugs, but I was so happy that I could just not stop talking. And I'm cracking jokes, and I'm doing everything, and I am just, 
ecstatic. And again, yeah, I'm sure the drugs play some role, some role, but the nurse is just like, you're the greatest neuro patient ever. <laughs> and she, and again, it was because I was just so freaking happy. I was like, not only am I alive, but it didn't take forever. It's not three weeks from now. It's like an hour from now and I'm alive and I'm awake and it's done. Did you ask her when you woke up, what's the date and what time is it? I may have saw it for myself. I think, okay. I think initially I was just freaking happy to be awake and alive. So yeah. no, I was just pure joy, pure joy, probably a little bit of drugs. But finally the nurse calls her supervisor and goes, yeah, I'm going to go help somebody else. Cause he's fine. He's the greatest neuro patient of all time. And he's fine. So um, they take me back to my room and they go, yeah, we're probably going to release you um, in the morning. And I was supposed to be there for days. And so I call my wife and I go, yeah, they're going to release me in the morning. And she's like, no, they're not. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm going home today. It's because it's the morning. I'm going home today. No, no, you're not. And I go, yeah, yeah, I am. And I went home that day. Because it, it was just so easy to get that thing out. It was, what does it say about my life? That brain surgery is the easiest thing that I've gone through. You need a shirt with that tag right? on it. Yeah. Wow. That, that is a crazy, crazy journey. So I got to ask, like, what gets you up in the morning when you're going through all of that? You know, you've, you've it's, I'm not going to lie. It's not as easy to stay positive as it was that first time out of the hospital. Um, my impression is like, okay, don't get too happy because then something's going to come slap you down again. It's like, okay, let's all keep this in perspective and not get too happy because that seems to be the pattern. Yeah. So you, you know, you, you try not to get too down and you, and you do, I mean, we're only human. And seriously, the people who are always happy, like all the time, they're annoying. They, you cannot be all that happy all the time. You've got to have some downtime. Come on, come on. Anyway, you know, you, you a lot of it, honestly, a lot of it I do because of my wife. And look, am I healthy? Yes. Um, have I recovered? Yes. But at the same time, much like being too happy, I don't want to overwork. And my wife is really protective of that. And she doesn't want to tempt fate. Uh, I took a job down in Olympia at the state's capital for a couple of sessions, a couple of legislative sessions, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I was tired sometimes, and I'd go home and sleep and stuff like that. But I mean, I did the job, no problem. Just, you know, I just had to rest more often. But I mean, I had no problem doing the job, and she just did not like that. So I, I walked away from, from that job. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of podcast recording from my home. I do the stuff with The Observer all from my home. And so, you know, it would probably be difficult for me to do a long commute and do, you know, a lot of overtime and things like that. Could I do it from time to time? Yes. But I don't think I could have one of those grinding jobs like at Amazon or Microsoft. I could work there, but I couldn't have one of the grinding jobs. Yeah. Um, those type of things. So I've got to be real, real conscious about that, real, real careful about those things. It may happen, it may not. We don't know, and, but we still don't want to tempt fate. And it also helps you redefine success. And there seems to be, look, everyone wants to achieve their goals. Everyone wants to achieve their dreams. And that is fantastic. But just because 
you don't necessarily achieve all of your dreams or don't do that doesn't mean your life sucked doesn't mean you suck it doesn't really mean anything so much of life is luck i mean my life would be completely different without this luck however you want to categorize it um you don't necessarily need the validation from the Grammys or the Oscars or being a multi-millionaire, the most famous person in the world, you still have value. And there are people who are, who have done much more than I have, who no one knows their name. They never won awards. And you look through halls of fame of anything, whether you go to the Hollywood Museum or you go to WWE.com and you look through their Hall of Fame or you look through their alumni section. Everybody gets forgotten at some point, no matter who you are. And I, I some 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 people on Twitter one time got me at this. Well, what about so-and-so? I'm like, well, it just hasn't happened yet. Just because they ain't forgotten yet doesn't mean it's going to happen. It will happen. You know, at some point, it will happen. It's just the way life, it's the it's everything has a life. And so even if you have all of this money or you have all of this, really the most important thing is, is influencing and being a positive influence on, on your family, on your close friends, and, and on that circle. That's really all that is, has any sort of permanent influence as far as passing it down through generations. Um, that's really all there is. And so, I guess as frustrating as it is that I would have liked to have done more, I would have liked to have had more money in the bank and especially more security. I mean, I'd be lying if I tell you I didn't worry about retirement. We did pay off those bills. Um, and this was before the era of GoFundMe. I mean, we cleared out a lot of stuff. I mean, we saved. We weren't like the biggest savers in the world, probably more than a lot of people. But, you know, in many ways, we found ourselves starting over again. And I worry about that, particularly since... You know, I'm supposed to be in my major earning years, and it just has not worked out that way. So there are things about the future that I that I worry about, but hopefully those things will take care of themselves. And if they don't, well, then I guess I'll just have to mentally cope. But, you know, I can't um, give up. Be, you know, most, most, I mean, the most important thing is maybe this sounds bad, but, you know, I can't give up mainly for my wife. She's done too much. She's put too much into it. She's suffered too much and had so much pain and struggling that at the very least, I owe her that. And if I got mad and decided to end my life or something like that, that would be incredibly selfish. That actually has happened in, in my family. So I've, I've seen that. Um, so even if I get frustrated with me and go, I'm nobody, I do nothing, I'm just this guy that talks about a kid show, pro wrestling. I still cannot, I'm just saying like in low moments, um, I still cannot give up because at the, very, at the minimum, even if I were unhappy with myself and didn't want to go on for myself, I do, but if I didn't, I owe my wife that, at the very least. Well, I mean, I, I, I do want to say that you sharing your story um, with your listeners obviously is is how Michael heard about it and how it got to me. And I yeah, that was crazy. And that was 
So, you know, you're on the air and, you know, you have your show planned out and I, you know, I have a direction of where I want to go. Some things I write out fully because I want to be very careful about the points I want to make. Other things you can be a little looser on. And I just broke out that I was not interested in getting into dumb fights over wrestling because, you know, I almost died four times and I don't see that as important. And suddenly that had a life of its own. So something that just kind of popped out that I didn't say for any other reason, just kind of people wanted to hear it. So they heard it. And when I told the story, they were very compelled by it. So it's been it's 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 been very touching. I really appreciate it. And and I think that's because there are people who are in a situation where they're having some difficulty and hearing someone else who has you know, gone to the end and come back and is still doing something with such passion and vigor that it's inspiring. Um, that's, it's obviously uh, something that Michael has listened to. And as you know, I've, I've mentioned him and his medical issues, he has had to deal with them and will continue to deal with them. Um, and how do you go on the next day? How do you not give up? How do you just say, you know, my life is crappy and I can't do anything to change it, so what's the point? Um, There might be some truth to it being crappy and not being able to change it, but figuring out how I put one foot in front of the other really makes a difference because your priorities can shift. You can find joy in new things, other things, um, and people need to hear stories about that. Um, Well, you also don't need validation from anybody else as far as, you know, you can still be great regardless of if you win an award or not. You can still be great regardless of how big an audience is. There are other factors other than quality that determine these other things are they a better uh bser than you are they better at promote self-promotion than you are a lot of it is timing you know in radio you know it's such a volatile business i've been in situations where uh, i get hired and i it turns out i don't connect very well with the boss and so you are at the bottom of the list for stuff and then Because of the volatile nature, that boss is gone. A new guy comes in and suddenly, boom, you connect with them and you're you're at the top of the heap and vice versa. I've I've had that happen several times in my career as far as the new boss either loves you or hates you. The old boss either loves you or hates you. And I was still the same person either way. I've had people that go, oh, you're great. I've had people that go, yeah, no, I'm never going to hire you. Um, It's all really subjective. So, yeah, don't. Looking for validation from other people for success or self-worth is just not going to work out. Even even if you find it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's real. It just means that you connected with that person or had the right timing. It well, just, there, are other, there are other things in life other than that. Well, as I've, I've said here on, on my podcast um, that I chose doing podcasting because I needed something to fill my soul. 
And this journey that I have been on has done so much for me and who I am that it really doesn't matter if anyone listens to me because it's the experience that I'm having that's making me a different person, a better person. And that's really what it's all about. Just on the surface, if you were to say last night at the Oscars, you say, you know, the filmmaker who produced the most award-winning film this year, he was from Korea, he doesn't speak English, it was a movie with subtitles about a class struggle between rich and poor, and you would go, that has got to be the most boring, dry speech I've ever heard. It has to be, right? It has to be the, right? How could you, that guy's got to be serious. He probably, he doesn't speak English. He's probably nervous. It's probably, and he was the most charming thing. I Person, whatever you want to call it, most charming aspect of the Oscars in years. I think the last one, was, who was that guy that climbed over the, uh, all the seats like a hundred, oh. like in the nineties? <laughs> um, the, the guy, the guy from Italy, I can't remember his name, but he was, it was just like, that guy was so charming. Yeah. It's like you can't just go, okay, well, this, because of these aspects, well, this is going to be this way. That guy was, you can tell already, that guy's a genius, and you can tell that he's super smart, and he's very empathetic, and you just, you're automatically drawn to his charisma, and looking at the surface on things, you can dismiss anything, but the reality of the situation can be completely different. So that's why, you know, don't necessarily look for validation like that. That guy kept going and he is now, everybody knows who he is and they should have a long time ago, but now they do. And every, if you don't love Bong Joon-ho, then I I don't know that we can be friends. Okay. (laughs) But we can because you do, because he's awesome. Okay. Can I go drink? Oh, sorry. I was thinking about him. Never mind. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast here. I'm really honored that you shared Roberto your story. Benini. That's who it was. There you go. I'm really honored that you came on to share your story with me and my listeners. I really appreciate this. And, and I guess I owe Michael a lot of favors for connecting us. If you say so. <laughs> so it was, I, It's not that hard. It's really not that hard. Again, I have been so nervous. I actually No, there's nothing nervous about it. it's I haven't done anything that I don't think anybody else would have wouldn't have done in my situation. Other people probably would have done better. Um really. Um it 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 was really really rough and there were a lot of things that we haven't talked about. There's a lot of time in there that we had to fast forward through and there are other aspects that I can't talk about, but you know, maybe there's someone who could have gotten through better or what have you. What I went through was, was awful and I didn't, and I didn't like it. I'm alive today. I'm grateful for that. I'm here for my wife. You know, she and I are closer than ever. That's probably the most important thing that came out of it. Um, not that we weren't close before, but you know, things like that, Money can't buy. Right. And it's probably more valuable than any Oscars. Even if you got two and you make them kiss like last night, it's, this is better. Right? This is absolutely better. Right. Well, I would love to share with my listeners where they can find you because 
You might not realize it, but I do have some followers. Oh, I'm, I have no doubt you do. Um, who are no, but who are wrestling fans? Oh, okay. On re okay, well that's good because pretty much all I do on Twitter is just wrestling stuff, because I just I don't and I just do like, like very light because I don't want to get into arguments with people because that's dumb. So I really try to just do wrestling stuff and keep it light. Uh, just because, because I don't want to engage with people on like a nasty level. The other day I criticized some pay-per-view from like 32 years ago and oh my word, people went off on me. Like some of it was, was fine. A discussion is fine, but other people I'm like, really? You're that man over a something that happened. Okay, whatever. Um, so I do wrestling stuff and follow me at Jim Valley. I'm also on Instagram. I probably do more travel stuff and things. I need to get more engaged and to get re-engaged with Instagram. It's Jim underscore Valley. Um, yeah, Facebook isn't all that interesting. So those your two platforms are probably the best. Uh, if you like wrestling, Twitter. If you don't, then do Instagram or do both. All right. And well, then I do the Wayback Playback, which your husband listens to with Pat McNeil. You can find that on Twitter. And then I do Wrestling Observer. Um, if you're a subscriber, you go to WrestlingObserver.com. Uh, Dave is the best um, when it comes to sources and news about professional wrestling. I do a show called the Portland WrestleCast because I grew up in the, in the Northwest. So your stuff about the, the glory days of Don Owen. And a lot of people don't know the stories and what happened in the territory. So they're learning a lot, which is awesome. Um, I do another thing. I do Wrestling Observer Live on Saturdays, which seems to be getting a lot of traction. You can find that on the Sports Byline website or the Wrestling Observer website. It streams live, or you can listen to it later if you're a subscriber, commercial free at WrestlingObserver.com. And I'm, there's always like a million podcasts. I have got a lot of them. So there's always stuff to find. Oh, great. I don't know how that happened. It just did. <laughs> well, when you're good at something, it keeps growing. It still happened. I don't know why, but it still did. Anyway. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing and uh, just letting us know kind of what's going on. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Anytime. anytime. We, can, we can revisit it if you feel like. Did I, do I need to answer questions? Is there anything you need to know? We can, if there's questions later, we can come back. If people want to have questions, we can do that. Or if we've answered everything, then that's fine, too. All right. Perfect. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Jim. My pleasure, anytime. Thank you for listening to Finding Myself. If you like what you heard, please leave a review. If you have a question or a suggestion, feel free to email me at findingmyselfpodcast at gmail.com. I also invite you to be part of our Finding Myself community on Facebook. There you will have access to more resources, more suggestions, more information, and the opportunity to be part of discussions. Please meet us back here next time.